0: Good morning. I'm getting over a little something, so I have a cough drop, so hopefully I'll make it through. Long ago in a distant galaxy, there was a popular show called You Are There. It started on the radio in the late 1940s and then ran on TV from 1953 to 1957. The TV show was hosted by Walter Cronkite. One source described it as this. The show took the entire network uh, network newsroom on a figurative time warp each week as key events in history were reenacted and presented as if you are there. These were top-rate productions with CBS reporters in suits and ties, alas, no female reporters, on the scene. Just imagine the reporters interviewing James Dean as he reenacted the capture of Jesse James, or Paul Newman in The Assassination of Julius Caesar. At the end of each program, Cronkite closed with the following words. What sort of day was it? I can't imitate him, I'm sorry. That's a voice that you cannot imitate. What sort of day was it? A day like all days. All things are as they were then, except you were there. The show ended well before I was born, but we must have watched reruns when when I was young because I can still hear Walter Cronkite saying, you were there. It seemed almost magical to go back and relive historical events in person. And I mean with TV, it's really like you were there, right? So why bring up this TV show, especially since some of you here have no idea what I'm talking about? (laughs) Why? because I think we often have this sense of what it would have been like to have lived when Jesus was on earth, if we had been there. What would it have been like to have seen him heal the blind man and to feed the 5,000? What would it have been like to have seen him make the wind and waves obey him? Can you imagine seeing Lazarus coming out of the tomb Somehow we believe that if we could have seen him in person, if we were there, then it would have been easier to trust him and follow him in our lives. What an advantage the disciples seemed to have. (coughs) But did they really? As our passage from Luke's Gospel shows, Cleopas and his companion didn't seem to have any advantage as they were walking on their way to Emmaus. They had been there. And had seen what Jesus had said and done. <clears throat> Yet they were confused by the incredible shock of Jesus' death. Wasn't he going to redeem Israel? Wasn't he going to make it all right? What happened? And this was from two who were there. Now we don't have Walter Cronkite to take us back to this path to Emmaus, but we have something better. Much better. We have Luke's account, one of the most beautiful and poignant narratives in the Gospels. So we're going to journey along with these two followers of Jesus by dividing our very long passage from Luke into three acts, which are preceded by some stage setting and then is going to end with a surprising twist. So let's set the stage. I'm calling verse 13 to the first part of verse 15 intense talk and walk away from Jerusalem. The scene opens the same day as the resurrection that is recorded in the first part of Luke 24. There we read that the women had reported back about the resurrection, but the the apostles could not believe their account. Peter had to go and see the empty tomb for himself, but he still did not understand about the resurrection as today's passage makes clear. The reference to two of them probably doesn't mean two of the 11, but rather two from among the other followers of Jesus. It's likely that these two had seen many of the things that Jesus had done during his public ministry. They had heard him teach, and they had had meals with him. They'd probably come to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they could have been a part of the crowd that cheered Jesus as he rode into town on a donkey. Now we find them walking back to their village of Emmaus outside of Jerusalem, walking and intensely talking about all that had taken place in the past several days. There can be a lot of talk on a seven-mile walk. And this discussion was intense. What happened? Jesus had been killed and his body was missing. Their world had been flipped upside down. This brings us to the rest of verse 15 and to verse 18. And this is act one, which I'm calling close but not quite. The fact that there are two here is significant. Even though they are clueless at this point, they are going to function as the twofold witness prescribed in Deuteronomy. So Luke foreshadows the role that these two will eventually have here at the beginning of the narrative. Perhaps this is also a narrative nod back to the beginning of Luke's Gospel, when Simeon and Anna functioned similarly as uh, witnesses to the birth of Jesus. As they are walking and talking, suddenly a stranger comes up and joins them. We are told that they are prevented from recognizing Jesus. And there's a lot of speculation about what this means. The idea of a divine figure disguised as a mere human being would have been familiar to Luke's audience. But the implication here is that God somehow kept them from recognizing Jesus. Some have speculated that Jesus's body itself was unrecognizable. But the emphasis will be on their eyes being opened, not about the appearance of Jesus's body. Notice also that Luke says they stopped walking as you read through Luke and Acts, you will quickly discover there is, traveling is a huge theme, which is one of the things that I love about Luke and Acts. In fact, part of Luke's gospel are actually referred to as the travelogue. So by indicating that Cleopas and his companion stopped, Luke invites us to stop as well. We get to stop and listen to this conversation. We're also told that the two were sad, this is also key. Some have suggested the fact that the second follower is not named invites us to see ourselves in this place in the story. Perhaps we are also sad. Perhaps we are also wondering where Jesus is. At this point, Cleopas asks an ironic question, more of the irony that we've been seeing the last couple of weeks. He is shocked that this stranger doesn't know what's happening and what's been happening in Jerusalem over the past few days. But we can smile and even laugh because as the readers of Luke's gospel, we know that Jesus is the only one who knows what has been going on for the past few days. As a quick aside, we don't know much about Cleopas. Perhaps he's named because uh, those in Luke's audience would have known him. Early tradition, early church tradition said he was Jesus's uncle and, Joseph, um, and Joseph's brother. We'll get it out here. In any event, we can only imagine that Jesus must have enjoyed asking them, what things? And Cleopas takes the bait. He explains how Jesus was a prophet who did and said powerful things and how the religious leaders handed him over to be crucified which implicates the Romans as well. But the poignancy of his words is felt in verse 21. We had hoped. Oh, such pain in those words. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the one to end our exile. We had hoped that he would make things better. We had hoped, but we were wrong. Oh, the pain. They had hoped, but their Jesus didn't meet their expectations. And the same can be true for us. We had hoped, but sometimes our Jesus doesn't meet our expectations. Yes, Jesus was a prophet. In fact, Jesus is the last prophet in a long line of prophets that God sent to his people. But Jesus is so much more than a prophet. So Cleopas' understanding of Jesus is accurate as far as it goes, but it's incomplete. Close, but not quite. And perhaps the same is true for us. They were so close to understanding, but they just couldn't connect the dots. It was the third day. The women had reported that his body was not in the tomb. The women reported they had a vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive. Some others had even gone to the tomb and found it empty, as the women had said. Jesus wasn't there. Now, at this point, I'm hesitant to bring up you are there again. But just seeing and hearing Jesus wasn't enough to help his earliest followers grasp who he truly was. The possibility of the resurrection was just too much to believe. They had hoped. But the tomb was empty, and Jesus wasn't there. All they could see was that their powerful prophet Jesus was dead and gone. So this brings us to Act 2, which is verses 25 to 27. And I'm calling this a rebuke and a lesson from scripture. Jesus' rebuke may seem a bit harsh, but these two had been steeped in the prophets all their lives. They had heard Jesus' teaching and how he was preparing them for his death. Yet it's interesting to note that Jesus doesn't remind them of his own teaching, but rather directs them back to Moses and all the prophets. All the scriptures here is a reference to what we call the Old Testament. Now, if ever there was a You Are There episode, this is the one that I would have wanted to see it would be this exposition of all of the scriptures and how they pointed to the necessity of the Messiah's suffering and the promise of his glory. But even CBS couldn't have captured Jesus showing how the voice of one crying in the wilderness in Isaiah 40 pointed to him, or how Isaiah 61 outlined Jesus's ministry of liberation or how Isaiah 52 and 53 showed how much he would suffer and be rejected. Imagine as Jesus showed how Daniel 7 and Psalm 110 pointed to his exaltation and his rule over everything. Can you imagine what was going on within these two as they began to grasp that from the very beginning, all of Scripture, had been anticipating, revealing, declaring God's perfect plan that had been purposefully and unstoppably moving toward Jesus, to his suffering and to his glory. The cross wasn't the end of it all. God's plan all along had been that after this suffering, there would be glory, incredible glory. No wonder their hearts were burning within them. This is the true Jesus who meets and exceeds all expectations. Indeed, he redefines our expectations in the light of the eternal plan of God revealed in all the scriptures. So now we've arrived at act three, which we can call an eye-opening meal. After this amazing Old Testament survey, it seems that this stranger intends to keep on going of course, that would have been unthinkable to Cleopas and his companion. Traveling at night was not a good idea, and this was long, long before Motel 6 and someone leaving a light on. That's why hospitality was so important in the ancient world, and it's a key theme in both Luke and Acts. So they invite him to stay and to have a meal with them. I love theologian used to comment here that Jesus seems to eat his way through the gospel, for he is frequently depicted at being at a meal. But in a surprising twist, Jesus takes the bread, blesses it, and gives it to them. The guest has become the host, and it is this action that opens their eyes to see who the stranger truly is. Perhaps they were reminded of the feeding of the 5,000 or other meals that they'd have with Jesus. Isn't it interesting that the last thing that Jesus does with his disciples before his betrayal and death is to have a meal? And the first thing that he does after his resurrection is to have a meal. And it is this act of hospitality that opens their eyes to the supreme hospitality of God in the offer of Jesus. It's not clear that this meal is intended to be understood along the lines of the Eucharist, but I think that we can see a connection to our own liturgy, where the proclamation of the word is followed by an invitation to our Lord's table. There's a clear connection between this and this passage between Jesus opening the scriptures, they're opening their homes to Jesus, and their eyes being opened. In a similar way, each week, God's word is opened to us we open ourselves to Jesus and come to his table, and our eyes are opened to see him more clearly. And in our narrative, just like that, he's gone. But the afterglow of his time with them, the burning in their hearts continues long after he's left. So this brings us to the end of the passage, and this is an epilogue that I'm calling Walking and Witnessing Back to Jerusalem. If Jesus reverses our expectations by becoming the host, the two two here reverse our expectations by getting up at that very hour and heading back to Jerusalem. Forget the fact that they were going home, forget the fact that traveling at night isn't safe, they had to get back to the others and share what had happened. Who could possibly go to bed after that? These two had been sad on their way home but now they were racing back to Jerusalem with burning hearts to bear witness to what they had just experienced. What a powerful scene. I think this is one of the most powerful narratives in all of Luke's Gospel. So I want to offer us from this passage four invitations to consider this morning. And I know it's the sanctified number of preachers should be three. But I'm breaking the rules, and I'm going for four, and they may not ask me to teach preaching again. First, we are invited to reject the you-were-there longing and to realize that we actually have a much better vantage point right now. This passage shows us that merely being there, seeing and hearing Jesus, did not by itself bring about the clarity as to who he actually was. We don't know what Cleopas and his companion uh, saw and heard when they'd been with Jesus was probably a lot certainly a lot more than we have seen and heard of Jesus in that way yet that alone did not enable them to connect the dots what they needed is still what we need and that is the words of Jesus to make sense of these events like him we can't recognize who Jesus is truly until scripture and his presence opens our eyes. He alone can connect the dots beginning with Moses through all the prophets that lead to him. And if I can borrow from John's gospel, it's to our advantage that Jesus left the earth because now we have the Holy Spirit who makes the scriptures come alive and burn within our hearts. Now we have the totality of God's word, which is more than his first followers had, Through the Spirit, Jesus connects all the dots through all of scripture, and all the dots point to him. In every possible way, he is the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes. Secondly, this passage invites us to feast on all the scriptures, from Moses to the prophets. Now, to be sure, now all the scriptures include the New Testament, and I'm not trying to work myself out of a job as a New Testament professor (laughs) But this passage invites us to focus on the Old Testament as a key witness to Jesus, to his suffering and to his glory. I can't squeeze an entire class on Old Testament interpretation into the next few minutes, but the Old Testament is overflowing with pointers and pictures of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, Old Testament passages don't speak about Jesus directly and by name. But they do point to the inability of humans to deal with their sin, and they consistently show us that humanity cannot produce its own savior. Over and over, the Old Testament shows the incredible goodness of God and that that goodness cannot be restored in this world by human effort. God himself must intervene to pay the price of human sin and rebellion and to eradicate evil. And actually, Luke's Gospel is a pretty good textbook for this exercise. Mm -hmm. Consider Mary's song, as she connects all these Old Testament themes to the promise of the birth of her son, Jesus, or how Simeon saw Jesus as the consolation of Israel. If you join us on Wednesday night for prayer or you have your own uh, pray compliment on your own, you're familiar with Simeon's understanding of how Jesus was fulfilled and uh, how scripture was fulfilled in Jesus's birth. In Luke 4, Jesus himself declares that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. And there are so many more examples. Third, this is an invitation in this passage to connect the word, the Lord's Supper and witness. As I said, I'm not sure that this meal is intended to be understood as the Eucharist, but even so, there's a link between Cleopas and his companion hearing Jesus explain the scriptures, then this eye-opening meal, and then the compelling impetus of these two to bear witness to what they had experienced. Similarly, we are invited to consider our own liturgical rhythm of hearing the word, having a meal with Jesus, and then being sent forth for witness. Every week, our eyes are opened to the word, our souls are nourished on the bread and the wine, and our hearts burn within us to bear witness to what we have seen, heard, and experienced. Finally, and perhaps at the most profound level, this story invites us into the movement from profound loss to incredible, heart-burning joy. We can only too easily see ourselves on the path to Emmaus. We had hoped, but we are discouraged and sad. Our expectations were not met. We are shocked, and we are experiencing profound loss. But surprisingly, in ways that we never could have imagined, Jesus joins us and opens our eyes to the witness from God's word that despite all the twists and turns, despite all the times when it seems that evil is winning, that the eternal plan of God is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All of scripture points to this. The cross did not invalidate this. The good and eternal plan of God prevails. And Jesus shows up in surprising ways to open our eyes to this good and eternal plan of God. He knows that it's hard for us to connect the dots. So he meets us where we are, on our own Emmaus path. He breaks bread, he blesses us, he reminds us of who we are, and he unexpectedly allows our hearts to burn within us so that we let, as we let him show us that he has always been the focal point of what God has promised and that he alone will bring every element, every element of that promise to completion. It seems like a hard path to be on at times, but it's a path that leads to Jesus and it leads to incredible joy. And we get to walk that path. Amen.